You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listens to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived for ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right away, in this passage, we are presented with a problem, and the two main characters that we've been following for the last few chapters in the series called Radical Faith, Abram and Sarai, husband and wife, they try to solve their problem by asserting their control over it, in the same way Jason Bacon's character did we just watched. And uh, things get a little messy for them in this story when they try to get their hands into the mess. Uh, you notice in these four verses there's a solution that they propose to their problem. That solution is offering a second wife to Abram, which is a little weird for us in our culture, right? That's not something that we would think would solve many problems for us. We're not used to offering a spouse, I'm assuming. I don't know if that's true for anybody, but I don't think any of us have offered our spouse an additional spouse to solve problems. So uh, the question that I have when I read this text and the question that many of us can tend to have is, what's going on here, right? What is the problem that's so bad that the only solution they can see is offering another spouse to resolve things? And in order to get at the problem here, we have to remember where we've come from in this story. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the start of Abram and Sarai's journey in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, they're called by God to leave their worldly identity behind, to leave behind their land and their family and their inheritance. And those things in that culture were the core of who they were. Every part of who they were was loaded into those three categories. And they choose to well, trust that God is telling the truth. They're called to leave those things because God has a different story for them, a story of redemption and restoration. But in order to step into that story, they have to leave a lot of stuff behind. And they choose to risk it and follow God. And they walk hundreds of miles to a new land. And since then, they've been waiting around. They've had a few misadventures in the meantime. And they've been waiting for God to show up because God promised that he would bless them through their descendants, through their line, that they would have kids and that those kids would bless every family in the world. It's this big cosmic story of redemption and restoration. But there's a couple problems for them. And the first problem is that they're both super old, and it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that God would bring children through them. And on top of that, Sarai is barren. She's infertile. Uh, 
So it doesn't really come together. How is God going to do this? How is God going to fulfill this promise? We trust that God is who he says he is, but the details aren't really working out so well. And that's where we are in this text. They've been waiting, it says, for a decade for God to show up. It's not like they just got here a week ago. They've been waiting for God to show up, and he hasn't for, well, 10 years. It's been radio silence. And we also have to remember that Sarai is carrying some things into this chapter here. See, in her culture, to be a woman and to be a wife meant that your primary role was to bear children. In fact, her identity would have been rooted in that in her culture. And the fact that she can't means her culture would have heaped a lot of shame. They would have said that she's insignificant, that she's functionally useless because her body isn't working. And so she's carrying shame into this passage. They've been waiting for a decade in the middle of that shame, and Sarai and Abram, they feel stuck. Their patience is wearing thin. And they're living in a tension that I think many of us have to live in today as well. A tension that says, well, I trust God, I believe God's promises, and I believe that God is good, and I also am having trouble seeing God's goodness in my life right now. I'm having trouble seeing where he might realize this promise that he's given us, a blessing to the world. And it struck me as I was reading this week how human this story is, how relatable it is, and how human generally the Bible is. This is, I think, a divine text. This is something that God speaks through. He's been speaking through it for millennia. But that doesn't mean that it's disconnected from our humanness either. It's rooted in things like dirt and water and air and blood. It's not full of escapist and fanciful far-off worlds, and it doesn't circumvent the hard stuff. It doesn't try to go around those things. It goes right through them, and it tries to reveal to us where God is in the middle of those things, where God is in the midst of our hardship, of our circumstances, and our brokenness. Think of all the very human things happening here for a second. The barrenness of Sarai. While we don't have the same sort of shame in our culture, women are not solely identified as uh, child bearers in our culture, we do still have things like infertility and pregnancy complications. We do still have things that women have to carry with them, things of pain and shame in some spaces. And I want to be clear this morning from up here, and as much as I can clarify to you all, if that's something that you've struggled with in this room, or it's someone, something that someone in your family or friend has struggled with, we want to be a church that walks with you in it. We want to be a church that grieves with you, that prays with you, that supports you in whatever way we can. And if that's not me personally, we have elders, we have community group leaders that can do that. We have resources outside of this church we can connect you to. But if you have been in this room or you know people who struggle with these sorts of complications in their lives, we want you to know that God is with you in it and that we're with you in it. And also, as an affirmation, if that's been something that's true for you, remember this truth. You are beloved by God. No part of what you've done or what you're unable to do, no part of what your body is able to do or unable to do determines your identity before the God of the universe. The creator of everything looks at you and says, my beloved child, my daughter, my son. That's true for every one of us in this room. That's true for every person outside this room. You are beloved, independent of what you do or don't do. So that's one very human thing going on in this text that we need to be aware of, right? This isn't a story uh, ripped away from humanity. It's a story that's woven into humanity. And even if infertility isn't something that necessarily resonates with us, we can certainly resonate with the frustration 
that Abram and Sarai are feeling here. Right? Their circumstances are not the way that they wanted them to be. Their circumstances are letting them down. How often are we filled with shame, like Sarai, because our culture tells us our circumstances are letting us down? Our circumstances aren't good enough, right? Advertising lives on that assumption. I don't know if you guys realize this. Advertising is based on the assumption that your life is not yet as it should be. And if you obtain this thing, if you purchase this thing, or if you're a part of this thing, then, then your circumstances will work out. Then you'll be in the place that you want to be. We see those things all the time on our devices, on our street signs, and on TV. We are bombarded with a world that's telling us your circumstances aren't good enough. Beyond just advertising, right? We see this in our career paths often. We're told that if you just get this promotion, or if you just get into this position, or if you can get into this room or this level in your career, then, then you'll have made it. You'll have the car, you'll have the house. And there's a reason we have things called midlife crises. Because people obtain all those things and realize, oh, it actually didn't give me the circumstances I wanted. It, not, it isn't really the thing that's supposed to fulfill me. We're shown images of digitally altered people all the time. And we're told that we need to look like those people and sound like those people and be like those people. I noticed recently all of the beer commercials that we have in our culture all show very fit athletic people. Like Olympians are the ones in the beer commercials. And I'm like, does no one else see? Like this isn't really cohesive necessarily. Like athletes aren't sitting around drinking beer after their, their, their events, right? There's a disconnect. We're told that if we just get this thing, our circumstances will become like this beautiful and athletic person. It's not necessarily how it works. Our culture bombards us with those messages all the time, and it fills us with shame. And we start to live out of that shame in the same way that Sarai and Abram are here. And they're also being frustrated by the timing of God, right? It's been a decade. It's been 10 years that they've been waiting for God to fulfill his promise, and he hasn't shown up. That is frustrating. That is really, really annoying, right? You're like, God, we trusted you. We traveled hundreds of miles to get to this place so that you would deliver on your promise, and nothing's happened. What's going on? That frustration is evident right in the text. Sarai says, the Lord has prevented me from having a child. She doesn't say, I haven't yet. She says, God is stopping this from happening. This is on God. And because he's not doing anything, I have no other choice but to take it into my own hands, to take control of the situation. And so these sorts of human responses, they're just woven into this text. They're woven into this whole library of texts. This has so much to say to our humanity today. And when we experience things like shame and frustration over our circumstances and annoyance with God's timing or frustration with God, it can often lead us to want to assert our control more and more. Like, you know what? If you want something done right, you do it yourself, right? You step in and take care of it. And that recourse that we have is the same one that Sarai and Abram have here. They choose to say, well, since Sarai's not having a kid, let's use the common cultural method of polygamy to solve the problem, which, by the way, was common in that day. We actually have records of similar cases from ancient Mesopotamia in the second century BC of, of these sorts of things happening from other parts of the ancient world where if a woman was barren, they would offer up a slave girl or a servant uh, so that this purpose of bearing children could be fulfilled. And thankfully, polygamy solves all of their problems. It definitely doesn't. Caleb's laugh in the back of the room. Polygamy does not solve their problems here. Things get worse and worse 
Uh, they go from a bleeding elbow to well, blood on the walls very, very quickly here. It gets out of control. And I know that polygamy is one of those kind of weird things that happens in the Bible that we don't really know a whole lot of what to do with in our world. There's a lot of people who say, oh, polygamy in the Bible, right? This is, is this a, like archaic ancient text that we need to forget and leave behind? Because this sounds a little out of place. And there's a couple points I think are important when we arrive at something like this in the text. First, fascinating thing, polyamory, the love of multiple people and commitment to multiple relationships is actually something that's pretty in vogue in our culture right now. I was reading an NPR article that said uh, one in five Americans have practiced relationships with multiple partners at the same time, where everybody knows what's going on. One in five. So this is not actually as ancient a thing as we realize. It's pretty present in our culture. And right between 6 and 7% of people would say that they've practiced polyamorous, polygamous sort of relationships at some point in their life. So this is not super distant. This is actually kind of relevant today. And people are still doing these sorts of things in our world, in our American culture. And Christians, historically, have not really been fond of this idea. We haven't really believed that polygamy is the way that God designed relationships to function. And so when we read it in the Bible, we should think, like, what's going on? Is Scripture promoting this? This is the father of our faith, Abram. And he's has a, he has a polygamous relationship. What's going on here? The second thing we have to remember about this is that uh, this is a narrative we're reading. Narratives are not always prescriptive in what they're describing. They're simply giving a story, and based on the playing out of that narrative, we can make conclusions on what's good, bad, or otherwise. For instance, if you're watching a movie and a murder happens, you don't immediately jump to this movie, man, supporting murder. Right? That's not how we read narrative. That's a really unhealthy way to read narrative. Instead, what we say is, well, what happens within the narrative? What does the narrative seem to be promoting based on how the events occur? And quickly, what happens here is polygamy goes wrong. That's why Caleb laughed. He knows this story. It gets worse and worse and worse very quickly for them. It splits Sarai and Abram later in chapter 16. They start to argue with each other and blame each other for this situation, as if they didn't both participate. Right? Abram at one point is like, look, you got to take care of this girl. This is your job. And it's like, Bro, she's pregnant. Like, you were a part of this, very clearly. This isn't something you can just distance yourself from. And then, on top of that, Sarai starts to, you see in verse 4, hold Hagar in contempt, right? She gets angrier and angrier at her. And as things continue in the chapter, she ends up kicking Hagar out of the house altogether. This plan that they thought would fix things actually made things way, way worse. And so, uh, scholar Robert Alter concludes that this passage, and what happens here, that's awesome. That horn was amazing. Scholar Robert Alter calls this the implicit disaster of polygamy. The implicit disaster, that the narrative informs us that this was not the way to fix the problem. If things keep getting worse and worse, this clearly was not the right decision to make. And so we learn, right in the middle of this, just like in that opening clip, that the assertion of our control often makes a mess of things. When we think that we can fix our problems, we end up making them worse. And it leads to a story here where it seems like there's not a whole lot of hope. It seems like God isn't showing up. It seems like their plans made things worse. And they don't really know where to go. And then God shows up in this story. He shows up first with Hagar. She's been driven out into the desert, this vulnerable woman who's pregnant, and probably uh, has been forced into this decision. It probably wasn't something she had a whole lot of say over. 
So she's forced to get pregnant, and then she's forced out of the house after doing the thing that Sarai and Abram told her to do. That's not really the best situation for a woman in the ancient world. She is vulnerable, she's alone, and God meets her. And so we learn first about the character of God, that he is not someone who leaves the vulnerable behind. He's someone who hears the voice of the vulnerable. He's someone who loves them and cares for them, and he promises that he's going to bring blessing to Hagar and to her son, Ishmael. So that's the first thing we learn here. God gets into the mess by hearing the people who have been affected by the mess and caring for them, loving them. And then we learn that he responds to Sarai and Abram. And that's where we're going to read here in Genesis chapter 17. This happens just a bit later in the story. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Can Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. And God said, No, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished up talking with him, God went up from Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right in the middle of Abram and Sarai's assertion of control, right in the middle of their lives that have been broken and fractured by their decisions, by their attempting to fix their problems, God reestablishes the promise of blessing. He doesn't show up and blame them. He doesn't show up and say, why didn't you do better? I'm revoking my blessing. That's not the character of God. God blesses independent of the response that we have to God. God is going to bring this plan forward whether we want to be a part of it or not. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, you get to choose. You get to be a Judas or John, but God's plan is going to work out. You get to choose how you're going to participate here, but redemption and restoration to all people are coming. And God brings that forward again here. He specifically says that this blessing is going to come through the barren and dead womb of Sarai. Quite literally, in this story, God is bringing life from a situation of death. From a situation where nothing else can seem to come, God brings something. In a place where humans have no power, in a place where their assertion of control can't fix things, God meets them. And he provides a pathway for them to step into life and blessing again. To jump back into the plan that he has. And notice, there's nothing that Abram and Sarai do to warrant this. The blessing of the entire world can only come through the free gift of God and our reception of that free gift. And God even changes their names. He changes their fundamental identities in this story. You might have caught that as we were reading, right? Oh, Sarai to Sarah. That's a different change. And you might have noticed Abram moved to Abraham now. Those are significant changes. Sarai to Sarah. It's a one-letter change in Hebrew. Scholars aren't really sure exactly what it might mean. Many of them assert that it means an elevation of her status. Her name means princess or queen. It's an elevation of her to this kind of higher royal level. And Abram to Abraham, that's a move from a name which means father to a name which means father of many. 
As Tim Keller says, it's a move from a name which means daddy to a name which means big daddy. Those are the things going on here. God's promise, God's promise transforms the identity of these people. They are brought into a story that goes well beyond their plans. They're brought into something that's going to bring good news to the world. That's what's happening here. And that changes them fundamentally. Now they're going to be remembered as people who participated in this plan. They're going to be remembered as people God used to bring blessing to all things. They're fundamentally altered here. And do you guys know this Abraham's response in the story? It's pretty humorous. He laughs, which makes a whole lot of sense. Again, this text is really human. It makes sense that Abraham would laugh. He's like, my wife's 90 years old and barren. And God says, I'm going to bring a child through. He's like, ha, ha, nice. Oh, oh, you're serious? And then he immediately jumps into rational questions, right? He's like, can this happen? I'm an old man. She's an old woman. How's this really going to work? And God reminds Abraham that he is always going to remember that laugh. He's always going to remember how excessive and over-the-top this grace is because Isaac, his son's name, literally means laughter. The child that's going to come through this family Every time Abraham looks at him, every time he calls his name, he's going to remember that he laughed at the overwhelming grace of God. He's going to remember how absurd and beautiful this gift really is. God makes sure that that laugh will be remembered for a long time. And then Abraham's first response after these rational questions is functionally, can we stick with my plan, though? He says, oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. Ishmael is the child born to him from Hagar. That was his plan, right? That was the, the plan that he had to work this thing out. Abraham functionally says, ah, cool, God, you're going to bring life through my barren wife. That sounds really cool. That sounds remarkable. I like the idea. I see what you're doing, but I kind of got this thing going over here. I kind of got this plan worked out right now. And I, I see that you might want to change some of that, but can we just hold on to what I'm doing here? I think this might work. I think I might have the right idea here on how to bring life into the world. And isn't that often our own tendency? in our faith journeys. We hear the story of God. We hear who Jesus is. We hear the life that he's inviting us into. We see that promise, and we think it's great. But eventually, we run up to, into the fact that that story might conflict with our current story. That story might mean we have to change some of our plans. The blessing of God might involve giving up our control over a situation, and so we can start to get into this negotiation with God, as Abraham kind of does here. We pick and choose the ways that we want to follow him. And we become hesitant when those things conflict. And so we say, yeah, I'm a follower of God, but I'm still going to vote the way I vote, though. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in one of these, like, you can't, that's a, that's a non-negotiable, right? And I'll love Jesus, but I really only want to spend time with people I like. My enemies, loving my enemies, that sounds a little crazy, right? So I'll kind of ignore that part of scripture, and I'll keep harboring resentment or anger against people I don't like. And I'll commit to this life of faith. I'll do it. But that's always going to be a background for my career. Because really, this season of life, the next little stretch, I've really got to get the thing that I've been looking for in my job. I've got to get the promotion, or I've got to move up the ladder. And I'll use faith language, and I'll definitely go to church on Sundays. I'm in on that. But other than that, I don't really want to change all that much. We want to smuggle our plans in with the plan of God. One of my favorite uh, books uh, that's come out over the last... A uh, few decades uh, is a book called *The Great Divorce* by C.S. Lewis, who I quoted earlier. 
Uh, the Great Divorce functionally uh, gives us a story of a bus ride to heaven. It's kind of the premise of the, the, the book. And one particular story on this bus ride to heaven, there's a, a man who's on the bus who steps out into heaven from the bus. And he's looking around, and it's beautiful. It's this uh, picturesque landscape with a mountain, with waterfalls, with trees and grass that have greens in them that he's never seen before. He hesitates to even call them green. There's something greater than green, almost. And so he steps out, and he's ready to enter into heaven, but he's got a lizard on his shoulder. And this lizard keeps whispering stuff into his, his ear. And as soon as he stepped into heaven, it got really, really loud. It got disorientingly loud, and it pulled him away from the space. And so he decides, oh, I, I can't be here, right? These two things are conflicting. Like, this lizard is distracting me from the goodness of what's in front of me. And so he starts to get back on the bus, because he realizes he can't really stick around. And an angel sees him. He's like, hey, oh, where are you going? You're leaving so soon? And the man says, yeah, I mean, I, I really want to be here, but I've got this lizard. He's like stuck on my shoulder. And I told him to behave when we got here. I told him, hey, look, you're going to have to be quiet. You're going to have to pipe down. But as soon as we got here, he started getting loud again. And the angel says, well, we can take care of that for you. We can get rid of the lizard. And the man says, well, that, that's a little drastic. I think I can kind of keep him under control. Let me hop on the bus. We'll take another lap. We'll come back. And the angel says, that's not how it's going to work. We can get rid of him, but it means we have to kill him. The man says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Killing? That sounds a little excessive, right? I can figure this out. And they go back and forth negotiating because he wants to keep his part of this thing in the middle of this heavenly space. He wants to maintain his lizard in the middle of heaven. And the angel says, it can't happen that way. And so the question for us is, what's our lizard? What's the plan that you have? Or the thing that you're attempting to control? The thing that you're trying to keep under wraps and uh, smuggle into this life of following Jesus? What's the thing that Jesus might be calling you to give up? What's the thing that Jesus might be calling you to release so you can receive what he has instead. Because friends, if God is the one, if God really is the one who's going to bring joyous good news of healing and life to the world, if that's really true, then the only way we can be a part of that story is if we receive his plan in our lives. The only way we can participate in this thing is if we choose to say, I'm following him and I'm willing to give up anything else for it because he has life, because he has flourishing, because he has redemption and restoration. We don't get to add our caveats to this thing. This faith isn't a smoothing of rough edges of our plans. It's a faith of death and resurrection. It's a faith of things that have to die so that things can live. It's an entirely new sort of life, which means we have to be willing to give up Ishmael in order to receive Isaac. Following God involves a willingness to see our plans changed and learning to partner with God in bringing life to the world when they do change. Back in 2015, I graduated from uh, GCU, my undergraduate degree in English, LOPSA, for those of you that are, yeah, we got some, a couple LOPS in here. And uh, after graduation, I was offered this really cool opportunity uh, to serve at a school of theology in Wales, across the pond. And they offered me a two-month internship and then mentioned, well, this might lead to other opportunities afterward. So as a recent college graduate, I was like, this sounds really exciting. This is right in the sorts of things that I want to do. And so I fundraised my way there. God met all of my needs in fundraising really, really quickly. And we uh, flew over, me and two other students who were part of this internship program. Uh, we get to the border. We've got all of our things together. 
And the customs agent starts asking us questions. And I was a naive little 18-year-old at the time. Or I'm sorry, 22-year-old at the time. And uh, I start answering their questions. And all of a sudden, their questions get a little more intense. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, what's, what's going on here? And then they tell us, OK, we're going to have you guys sit in those chairs over there. So for an hour, we sat in those chairs that they pointed us to. And then they directed us behind a door that I didn't know existed in airports, but it does. And it's a place where they can search you and your bags. They searched us head to toe. They searched our bags. And then they had us wait in a sort of interrogation room for eight hours. They asked us question after question about what we were doing. We told them, we're partnering with this school. You can call them. They've squared everything away. And at the end of those eight hours, they told us, yeah, the visa law changed a few weeks before you got here. You guys aren't allowed to be here. We tried to negotiate with them. We said, well, what if we like, stick around for a shorter time? You keep our passports. Like, we'll come back. We just want to. And they're like, no. No, not going to happen. And so within a day and a half, I was back in Arizona. My plans were entirely disrupted. And I was doing the thing that I felt like God wanted me to do. I was being faithful in that story. I wasn't fleeing, it didn't seem. I was doing the thing that seemed like it was the right thing to do. Kind of like Sarai and Abram were here. Like, look, God said he's going to bless us, right? God said he's going to give us a kid. This is how the culture says we get a kid, so let's do it. Because this is what God told us. They're not necessarily being entirely unfaithful to God here. They're thinking about the plan of God and wanting to participate in it. But sometimes God even disrupts our control of those plans. And so I got back here, and I was confused. I was heartbroken. I didn't know what to do. And I had a friend who was at GCU at the time. And they said, hey, I can be a referral for you. Why don't you apply for this job as a student services counselor at GCU? And I had no other plans. So I said, sure. Yeah, I'll try it. I don't know what I'm doing had nothing to do with my degree program or what I studied, and they hired me. I don't know why, but they did. And over the course of the next four years, I got to impact hundreds of students' lives, have real, tangible conversations with them about what they wanted to do in their life, the vocation and degree program that they felt led to, to follow, their finances and how to manage those well, and a lot of times even really sweet faith conversations there. I got to have countless spiritual conversations with my coworkers, some of whom are in this room right now. God used this disrupted plan to bring about something that I would never have planned myself or anticipated. I was able to pay for a master's degree at Fuller Seminary, a degree that I loved, that changed my life in many ways. I got to marry my wife, who, at the time when I left for the UK, wasn't so sure about living overseas. So if I had ended up continuing that way, I don't know where we'd be. God brought all of these blessings, things that I couldn't have pictured or anticipated, because he disrupted my plan for things. My life is a story of disrupted plans through which God has brought great joy, through which God has brought great healing and restoration. And I don't get to stand here with you all. I don't get to do life with you people. I don't get to love you and walk with you and laugh with you unless God disrupted my plan. None of that happens without God changing things. And I know that as I say this, there's a tension in us because the disruption of our plans is hard sometimes. I still resist it in my life. I definitely do not perfectly follow uh, the plans of God. I regularly resist, like, God, why is that happening? Like, I don't want to have to deal with that. But ultimately, a life of faith involves trusting that God's vision expands beyond our vision. 
that God's picture of life and flourishing goes well beyond our picture of life and flourishing. So do we trust that? Do we really believe it? Because if we do, these disruptions that we face in our plans, they aren't failures, and they aren't mistakes, they aren't screw-ups. They're actually new ways that we get caught up in the story of God. They're new ways that we get to participate in serving the last, the least, and the lost. They're new ways that we get to advocate for justice in our world. They're new ways we get to love our neighbors. But it's only in releasing our plans that we can receive the redemption and restoration that God has for us. It's only in being willing to leave all of that stuff behind that we can follow him. And I can tell you from experience, God's disruptions of our plans often prove to be far greater than what we had planned in the first place. Who we are as humans, who we are as followers of God, is so much more than we could plan, friends. It's wrapped up in a bigger and wider story, and that's the story that Abraham was stepping into and Sarah was stepping into. There's a guy named Paul who lived a few thousand years later uh, who wrote, we have his writings in this book. In the book of Romans, he talks about the faith that Abraham had. He said, hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, though he did laugh, which is funny. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. You guys see it? The blessing of God, the gift of new life, of redemption and restoration, it's not a slight cleaning up of our own plans. It's a reception of God into every part of our lives. It's a commitment to trusting that God has all that our hearts have been longing for, that the life that he has for us is the true life that we've always wanted. And we need that sort of story because our plans are dead or dying. Human history is one long, winding tale of human barrenness, of humans having the inability to bring full life and flourishing to ourselves and to the world. And the more we've asserted our control, the more we've wrought death and destruction. But something else has happened. The same healing, redemptive reality that Abraham received is available for us today. That cosmic blessing that God had for Abraham, that healing for all people in all places, it's arrived in the person of Jesus, whom we all can know and walk with. The same thing that Abraham and Sarah did, giving up their own plans and receiving God's, it's the same thing that we're called to do today in order to receive what God has for us. See, Jesus lived his entire life by releasing his plans and receiving God's. He gave every part of himself so that this redemption and restoration could come. And in doing so, he became the fulfillment of this blessing from Abraham. He actually lived as the fulfillment of this blessing to the world. And now because of what Jesus has done, you and I can participate in that story. When we follow Abraham and Sarah's lead by trusting in God through Jesus, we become wrapped up into the healing of the world. We become people who heal, who love, and who forgive. Friends, Jesus lived, died, and rose so that we could take our part in this story, so that we could step in with him. And that same Jesus is here amidst us, wooing every one of us every day to join him. All he asks is that we release our plans and receive his story.
And I can tell you from experience, he's a great, great author. Let's pray.